Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Taking in the, the shared intentions that are bringing us together, peace, kindness, learning, listening, freedom, Sensing the goodness in our orientation, what we're pointing towards, that's bringing us all together. And also maybe just noticing how it feels to be sitting in this circle right now with the unfamiliar faces. Noticing if there are projections or judgments, people that you feel drawn to or people that you feel averse to. Just Letting all that be here and marking this moment as we begin together. So this is, this is a coming together and we have the gift of these next few days to be together as human beings, to share time and space um, and to allow these beautiful intentions to guide us in this experiment of trying to learn how to be more human together, how to be on the planet in a way uh, that brings forth the best in us, and how to use our relationships, our words, our listening, our actions, in support of that. So quite a gift. I'm curious, how many people are here at BCBS for the first time? Raise your hand. Woohoo! cool. Great. How many people is it your, your first um, retreat in, of, of, of any kind? Great. Okay. Wonderful. So I want to I give a little bit of an overview tonight of um, the terrain of speech practice. And, uh, and then formally begin our retreat with a short ritual. <clears throat> so I've been teaching this particular course, this is the third year now, and um, every year it seems more and more relevant <laughs> and important. <laughs> uh, We're by nature relational beings. We're social creatures. And there's something deep in each of us uh, that longs to belong, that longs for a sense of connection, uh, a sense of place, and a sense of community. You know, uh, our, our biology is expecting a very particular kind of situation in life. It's expecting to live with other human beings that we know, that we have a relationship with. It's expecting that in that community 
of shared relationships, that we also have a shared sense of our history, where we come from, where we've been. That we work together and cooperate to provide for one another. Our biology is expecting that we work together towards a shared purpose that's greater or larger than any one of us individually. This is how human beings have lived for millennia. And modern, contemporary, Western society couldn't be farther from that. We don't know the person next door. We have no relationships often with the people around us every day. There are too many in many cases, especially if you live in a city, to know them. Often our work is not connected to a sense of purpose or meaning or something larger than ourselves. Many of us, for various reasons, have lost a sense of connection with our history or where we come from, depending on your heritage. So there's, I think there's a profound and fundamental disconnect in the structure of our society with, with what our organism and, and our hearts, and to a certain degree, I think our spirits, are longing for and expecting. And a central part of that longing for community and connection and belonging and place and meaning and history, a central part of that is our communication. The stories we tell, the conversations we have, the words that we share with one another are the medium through which we build those connections and those relationships. It's the substance. There are many ways to have a relationship. There are many ways to communicate. But for, for most of us, speech and communication, listening, written communication, is one of the primary means of contact that we experience as a human being. It's not the only one, but it's often the primary one. Because, because we long for this experience so deeply, and this isn't a personal longing. I, want to, I mean, we can experience that way, that, that way. And there's a whole range, right? Some of us are more introverted. Some of us are more extroverted. Um, but something deep in our genes arrives in this world, on this planet, and from the moment we're born is expecting to be held, literally and figuratively. Because of, because of this longing, and because speech and communication is such a central part of that longing, it's an incredibly powerful place to awaken. It's an incredibly powerful place to include in our spiritual practice. When we're born, we only have two, mainly two ways of communicating our needs. We enter the world completely vulnerable completely dependent on our caregivers. And we have two ways of letting them know. 
what we need. Crying and smiling. That's our hard wiring. That's it. My need is not met, I cry, I scream. My need is met, smile, light up. And from there, we learn. We learn language. We learn all of these ways to connect and relate and express and receive. I mean, just, just pause for a moment and consider how amazing it is that we can do this, that I can sit here and form words that you understand. That something in my own mind, in my own heart, that's inside of me can come out and then enter your own mind and your own heart. If I say red, yellow, you say... If I say one, two, you might say... Right? If I tell you about a waterfall in the green mountains of Vermont where I spent my summers surrounded by granite rock with cold mountain water, you've never been there, but all of a sudden you're picturing a waterfall and a mountain and rock. Our minds are not so separate. And this language, this amazing phenomenon, this incredibly nuanced ability we've evolved to communicate allows us to, to touch one another. So it's incredibly powerful. And we consider the good, the potential for good in communication and words. And just, just think of the last time you saw a good friend and, or the last time somebody said something kind to you. Someone said, hey, thanks so much for helping out. Or that's a beautiful sweater, you look great today. And how'd that make you feel? When I was um, much younger and just beginning my practice in India, I had a very hard time um, a few years in. I was a, I was a mess. <laughs> Things were really, really kind of unraveling in my heart. And um, ended up needing to leave India and come back to the States because I just psychologically was not um, helpful anymore to be practicing in an intensive way in a retreat environment, in a foreign culture. And at the monastery where I was staying, there, was, um, there were a few Westerners also staying there. And there was one guy, it's funny, I can't even remember his name now, I can see his face, uh, who was living there. And I was so scared. I was so frightened of what was of the feelings that were coming up. It was a lot of rage, a lot of un unexpressed rage from from growing up and various things that had happened in my family, and uh, and I was uh, deeply sad. I felt like a failure, like I couldn't do this practice, and I wasn't getting anywhere. And he just spent time with me. We had tea and talked. It was so meaningful, just that gesture of spending time and listening 
and offering gentle words of reassurance. You know, it's okay. It's, it's like this sometimes. It's hard. You'll be okay, you know. The words have that power to heal, to uplift us. There's a saying in the Dhammapada, the, one of the collections of the Buddha's sayings, He's quoted as having said, better than a thousand useless words is one word which brings peace. Have you ever had someone say something that helped you feel at peace? And then the opposite the potential for harm that words carry. And again, I think we each know something of this, yeah? How we can feel deeply wounded and pained by something someone else said, alienated or alone, or the reverse, when we've said something out of anger or out of pain, that's hurt someone that we care about, and you can't take it back. And how hard that is. You know, once it's out there, it's, we can't undo it. And it's not just personal, this, this potency of language has the potential to uh, have effects on society, right? Again, for good or for ill. This is from Hermann Göring, who was um, Hitler's kind of second in command. He wrote, voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That's easy. All you have to do is tell them that they are being attacked and denounce the peacemakers for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. Sound familiar? Germany, 1940s. So words are powerful. Think of that baby smiling or crying. Think of this deep longing to connect. So it's this um, powerful capacity that we have as human beings. The Buddha talked about it as one of the three primary channels through which awareness runs. There's the, the body, uh, the body uh, patterning called the kaya sankara. We experience things in a bodily way. There's the citta-sankhara, the patterning of the heart-mind, where we experience feelings and meanings and perceptions. And there's what's called the vajji-sankhara, the, the speech faculty, which includes thought. So this channel of awareness. And it has, it has an impact. It carries um, an ethical valence to it. Our words matter. They have an impact on ourselves, on others, on society.
So coming back to these beautiful intentions that, that are bringing us together and some, some wisdom, those intentions are rooted in wisdom, recognizing each of us here together tonight have had some recognition. I want to use this energy, I want to use this capacity I have as a human being in a different way for good, for peace, for kindness, rather than for harm or just frittering it away, just wasting it. So what is right speech? What is this right speech? I was, um, I like to tell this story because it was a, it was a neat learning for me. I was uh, I was at a wedding in uh, Nevada, outside of in Nevada City in California, which is uh, up in the foothills of the Sierras, a few years ago. And um, the big wedding was at the reception in this big hall, and it was very noisy, a little bit hot. And uh, so I took a walk. I went out to just take a walk and get some air. And I was just walking around the little town, and. Uh, um, walking down the street and uh, this gentleman is walking towards me with his groceries and he looks at me and he says, Oren Sofer. And I said, hi. <laughs> and he looked slightly familiar but I, I couldn't remember him. He said, I sat a retreat with you at Spirit Rock a couple years ago, one of your speech retreats with Donald Rothberg. And I said, oh, that's great. It's nice to see you. He said, you know, I've been thinking about speech a lot lately. I have a question for you. <laughs> I said, cool, what's your question? <laughs> And he said, what's the essence of right speech? <laughs> and I said, that's a really good question. Let me think about that for a second. And, um, and so I gave him kind of like a stock answer. You know, because I just was like, well, you know, I haven't really thought about that in that way, which was interesting because I've been teaching this and studying and teaching this stuff for like 15 years. Um, so, you know, I said, well, you know, the essence of right speech, you look at the texts, uh, the Buddha says, okay, well, right speech is abstaining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle speech. And then he said, it's, and, and that's the negative side, and on the positive side, it's cultivating speech that's truthful, that's useful, that's kind, that's coming from a good heart, and that's timely. That's appropriate to the context. So that's kind of, that's, that's right speech. He said, oh, great, thanks. I said goodbye, going away. But, you know, I, I didn't feel like I'd really answered his question. At least I hadn't answered it for myself. So the question stayed with me. Okay, what is the essence of right speech? Do you want to know what my answer is? <laughs> To me, having contemplated the question and gone back to the texts and look at, looked at it more closely, I think the essence of right speech is using language, using words and thought to lead to awakening. That's the essence of right speech. It's words that lead to awakening. The guidelines that I just mentioned, the intention behind them is to help us be free. And the mechanism for that 
is by using speech to cultivate wholesome states of mind, like kindness and patience and honesty, like integrity and compassion, like energy and equanimity, and using speech in a way that decreases unwholesome states of mind, states of mind that lead to pain and suffering or difficulty for ourselves and others, states of mind like greed, self-centeredness, bitterness, confusion, apathy, worry, fear, manipulation, deceit. So how much, when we consider our language, our words, which is not just our speech, right? It's our text messages, it's our emails and our posts, it's our thoughts. How much of our words lead in the direction of wholesome mind states of freedom, peace, and awakening? And how much of our words lead in the direction of unhelpful mind states, of more confusion, entanglement, craving, or negativity? So what is the right in right speech? What does that mean, right speech? Well, it's important to keep in mind this is a translation. So we're translating from another language. So the word in Pali is samma, samma vacha. Vacha is speech, V long A, C long A. It's connected to the word that we have in English, voice, from the Latin root, box. Vacha, speech, voice. And samma, which is translated as right, that's one of its uses in the suttas, right or wrong, um, is also connected to the English word for summit or summary. Samma, complete, whole. So it's, on the one, in one sense, it's, the, it's speech that's complete and whole which is why sometimes you find the Eightfold Path translated as like wise speech, talking about, or wise effort. It's the sense that it's, it's this quality in us that's, that has grown and matured over time. The other meaning that, um, the other way that I understand this word, right, right speech is, um, so one, there is an ethical dimension to it. Again, it's saying that, that we're using this faculty that we have for the good, for, for bringing well-being into our own lives and others' lives. But it also means it's aligned in a certain direction. So if you were to ask me how you get to New York, 
and I point you north, I'm sending you in the wrong direction, right? You're not going to get to New York if you start going north from here. You're going to end up in Canada, which might be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so right speech means it's speech that goes in the direction of awakening. It's the right direction to go if your goal is freedom from suffering. How's everyone doing? All right? Yeah, it's been a long day probably for most of us. Yeah. You have capacity to hear some more? Yeah? Okay, okay, good. So speech has a really prominent place in the teachings of the Buddha. Once, if, if, anyone of you, if some of you have studied, you know this, and if you haven't, if you begin to study the, the teachings, you will see that um, both explicitly and implicitly, um, language and speech is an important part of this practice. Uh, so perhaps the most, um, one of the most important that we, we can easily overlook is it's how we learn about the teachings. Reading a book, listening to a Dharma talk, having a good friend who shares the practice with us. If you read the early texts, how do most of them begin? What's that phrase at the beginning of each sutta? Thus have I heard. Huh? Okay, so the very fact that we have these teachings is because they were preserved in the oral tradition for a few hundred years before they were written down. So at the time of the Buddha, it was not, um, it was, it was not a written culture. It was an oral culture. And a disciple might have only seen their teacher once in their whole life, if they were lucky. Maybe they saw him once, you know? And so they would memorize the teachings and chant them and recite them to make sure they didn't forget them. This is one of the meanings of the word mindfulness. In the text, one of the definitions of mindfulness is that one remembers what one has heard long ago and bears it in mind. Huh? It's interesting. It means we, we remember what we've learned. That's being mindful. Sure, one of the definitions of mindfulness is that one remembers what one has heard long ago and bears it in mind. And if you think about a preliterate culture that's an oral culture, that makes a lot of sense, right? To, to, to remember the things that we've learned, because you can't just go look it up online or even in a book, because there weren't books. In the uh, sutta on the, on the highest blessings, um, speech shows up three different times in this uh, litany of all of the wonderful blessings in life. Things like um, having a meaningful trade or craft, supporting your family and friends, um, uh, living in a congenial environment. Uh, so one is hearing the Dhamma, 
hearing the teachings, again, communication, discussing the teachings is considered one of the highest blessings in life. Okay, so we're doing all right if we're here this weekend. <laughs> and then another one of the highest blessings is um, subhasita, pleasant speech, endearing speech, gentle speech, being able to speak in ways that, uh, that are pleasing to hear, that uplift the heart, is considered one of the highest blessings. And again, if you think back to your, just think of a relationship where either someone else has said something to you that was, that was deeply touching, reassuring, or uplifting, or when you've said something to someone else, when you've been able to be there for a friend in need, and, 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 and you said something that helped, that was meaningful, that assuaged their distress, how much of a blessing that was to get to contribute and give in that way. So, um, Speech also shows up, as many of you are probably aware, in the ethical guidelines for this Buddhist path. Um, so for a lay person, the, one of the main teachings on right speech is in the five precepts, which I'll talk about hopefully very soon. <laughs> um, to, uh, to use our speech in, in the way that I've been describing, but also for a monk. So for a monk who or a nun that have between two and three hundred major rules and thousands of minor rules in their uh, code of conduct, there are different levels of rules. Some of them, if you break it, you just kind of have to acknowledge it to yourself and you go, oops, okay, do it differently next time. Other rules, you have to tell someone and say, hey, you know, I got to tell you, I, I did this by accident or, you know. And then that's enough. Others, so different layers of uh, if you if you mess up, there's different um, protocols for how to um, learn from that in the training. And there are four rules that if you break one of them, you can't be a monastic in the Buddhist tradition anymore. You're out. And it's not it's not about like you know you're not good enough, or you failed. It's more like if you do this, um, this isn't the right container for you to grow and learn in this life. Uh, and one of those four is about speech. It's lying about one's spiritual attainments or lying to, uh, to, to, to gain favor and uh, 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 donations and, and material goods. Powerful, right? Speech is so important on this path that the Buddha gave it its own place in his summary of the whole path, the Eightfold Path. All of the other ethical guidelines for living, about killing and stealing and your um, sexual relations, all those get grouped under right action and right livelihood. Speech gets singled out. Not only does it get singled out, but it shows up in the list, which is, which is a cycle, it's not just a linear thing, but in the list it shows up b before mindfulness or concentration. It's right there at the beginning after the wisdom teachings on right view and right intention, 
is right speech. So that's significant. The Buddha is saying, look, if you're interested in not suffering, if you're interested in living a more meaningful life, first develop wisdom. Make sure you're looking at things in the right way. Pay attention to where you're coming from, your intentions in life. And then the next thing is learn how to use your speech wisely. So it's not easy. It's important, it's there, but it's not easy. One of the main reasons why it's so hard is simply because we haven't practiced. Right? If you've never thrown a wheel, uh, thrown a pot on a wheel, and someone gave you a lump of clay and said, here, put your foot on this pedal and make a pot, you know, you wouldn't make a nice pot the first time because you hadn't practiced. You'd never, you know, really learned how to work with clay. So have we learned how to work with speech in a very skilled, precise, and delicate way to mold it, to shape it? It takes practice. So that's one of the reasons we come together and take time out of our life for this kind uh, of an experience. To practice with speech in a clear and intentional way. And that's one of the gifts of this weekend, is that we're together with uh, people who share some of the same intentions in life to support each other to learn. And that means that we can make mistakes together, that we can mess up together. So this weekend isn't about getting it right. If anything, it's about getting it wrong again and again and again. This is from uh, someone named Alan Kay. He said, if you don't fail at least 90% of the time, you're not aiming high enough. The, the more comfortable we can get with messing up, the more fun we have when we're learning. So how do we do this? This is what we'll be exploring together this weekend. We'll be looking at the Buddha's recommendations for how to work with speech, the specific guidelines he gave. Um, we'll be looking at how meditation practice, mindfulness practice and loving kindness practice can serve as a foundation for our speech practice. And we'll also be looking at the integration of mindfulness into a, the more modern uh, discipline of nonviolent communication, which provides a very powerful and clear structure for understanding communication, thought, and interaction. So there are a few supports, there are a few things that help us, just like uh, as Cassie was talking about these various logistical ways of being together, the bulletin board's there, and please don't shower before 5.30 in the morning because your neighbor might be sleeping. There are other supports that we have to do this work together. And traditionally, these are known as the three refuges and the five precepts. And um, these are ways of aligning our intentions together 
in how we're in how we're here and drawing on a deeper well of support so i want to speak briefly about these and then we'll do a short ritual together formally entering the retreat uh, and taking the refuges and precepts uh, and you can you can participate in that uh, in whatever way feels comfortable and appropriate for you uh, which i'll say more about in a moment I love talking about the refuges and the precepts, so I could sit here for another hour and talk about it, but I won't. <laughs> um, so I'm just acknowledging that uh, it's a this is a rich area to explore and to learn about. So the refuges are about finding a source of strength inside ourselves that's much deeper than our personality our will, or our mind. The first refuge is the Buddha. And on one level, that means the um, uh, human being who lived 2,600 years ago on the plains of India, who was a prince, who left home to seek enlightenment, who had such a profound and complete awakening that it's still affecting millions of people on the planet more than two millennia later. Just think about that. Every, right? Like we get a good idea every now and then. <laughs> like this was a big deal. <laughs> So on one level, taking refuge in the Buddha means like, whoa, this person had like really understood things and thank you, you know, thank you. But it's also, it's much deeper than that. It's not about the, the person himself and it's not about this bronze statue behind me. It's about what he represented, what he realized. Buddha means awake, one who is awake. So taking refuge in the Buddha means taking refuge in our capacity for wakefulness. The capacity we have as human beings to be aware is our refuge. So this is refuge in the Buddha. Refuge in the Dharma or the Dhamma, again, has two meanings. One, it means the teachings, the, the instructions and the guidelines that he left, that he handed down, that have been passed down for generations that we still have access to today. Again, that sense of thank you, wow, I don't have to make this stuff up. There's a path to follow that other people have walked. There's a map taking refuge in that. On a deeper level, it means taking refuge in the natural order of things. That, that these bodies and minds are part, of, are part of nature. And nature has certain laws. We live in a lawful world. Everything that begins ends. Every, uh, you know, there are laws of thermodynamics, laws of physics, there are laws of the heart. And the more we understand the laws of nature and live in harmony with them, the less we suffer. So that's taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the, in the way, the natural order of things. The Sangha means the community. And this means those who have 
walked this path before us, that there's a lineage, that there's a, a sense of, um, you know, this isn't just uh, this Jewish kid from Jersey sitting up here talking, that there, <laughs> that there are a lot of other people who have walked on this path um, that we are all connected to by virtue of the fact that we're here together and that we can draw support from that. And it means that the community that's practicing together. So those of us who are on this path together today, that we can draw on support from one another. So these are the three refuges. The Buddha, refuge in awareness. The Dhamma, refuge in the path and the way things are. Nature of things. And the Sangha, the refuge in the community. So um, in a moment, we'll, we'll take the three refuges by chanting them in Pali together in call and response. And uh, you can do this out loud if you don't feel comfortable and for, for any reason. That's totally fine. You can just listen and reflect on the meaning and however it connects for you. So we'll, we'll begin. So this is on the, the chant sheet. And we'll begin with the uh, traditional homage to the Buddha, which again is this, this gesture of respect for, for his awakening and, and for the, uh, the gift of these teachings. So we'll chant it call and response. I'll chant a, a phrase and then you can chant it back. And we'll do that first line, the namotasa, three times. And then we'll chant the, the three refuges also three times. And we do it three times because we tend to space out. So the idea is if you chant it three times, you'll be, you'll be present for at least one of them. Hopefully. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Namo tasa. Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambudhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambudhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambudhasa Buddhang saranang gachami. Buddhang saranang gachami. Dhammang saranang gachami. Dhammang saranang gachami. Sanghang saranang gachami. Sanghang saranang gachami. Dutiampi. Buddhang saranang gachami. Buddhang saranang gachami. Dhammang saranang gachami. Dhammang saranang gachami. 
Sanghang Saranangga Chami Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami Dhammang Saranangga Chami Sanghang Saranangga Chami So these refuges, as I said, are about connecting to a deep well of support within us and aligning our intentions. The five precepts are about forming our community. And one way of looking at them is about agreements, that they're agreements that we make with one another about how we can be together these next three days in a way that's supportive, in a way that's uh, deeply connected to a sense of respect and care and kindness. Um, so uh, these are not commandments. It's not, uh, you know, thou shalt, and if you don't, you are bad and evil. Uh, these are training guidelines. That's how they're understood in the Buddhist tradition. Training guidelines, which means it's about learning. It's about learning what what drives us to act? When we want to take something that doesn't belong to us or that isn't offered, if we've taken the precept and we notice that impulse, it, it makes us pause. What's going on here? What, what, what's happening inside? We begin to study the energies in our hearts and our minds that drive our actions. And then we begin to develop wisdom about what leads to well-being and what goes in the opposite direction. About what leads to peace and what leads to further entanglement and confusion. So these five precepts, um, the first is not taking the life of other living creatures, which includes um, little crawling, creepy, in creatures, insects. So, you know, if you find a spider or a bug in your room, instead of that impulse to squash it and destroy it, just to try to, you know, catch it with a cup or something and take it, take it out. Put it by your neighbor's door or, you know, just, <laughs> you know, take it outside or take it to another corner of the building where you feel like it might be okay and make a little home over there. Um, the second precept, again, is around uh, uh, stealing but the, the way it's phrased is more subtle. It's about not taking that which is not given. So what's been offered? And so each of these precepts has a very kind of surface level, uh, but also has a deeper level of training. You consider the precept around taking that which is not given. How does that, what does that mean about our use of resources and, and the contemplation of future generations? So it's just one example of how these precepts can become uh, 
um, deeply meaningful in, in how we live our lives. The third precept is around our sexual energy, another very powerful energy that we have as human beings. And um, it's a beautiful energy that we can experience wonderful uh, connection and intimacy with. We can experience um, a lot of pleasure and joy with, but we can also, as most of us probably know, experience a lot of harm and pain through that energy when it's not related to properly. So in our day-to-day -day life, usually this precept is just about not causing harm with our sexual energy, paying attention to it, using it carefully. When we come on a retreat, we take the precept in the form of celibacy, to not act on our sexual energy in any intentional way. And again, this isn't because there's anything amoral or evil or wrong or bad about sexuality. It's in the service of understanding, of looking at this energy closely instead of following it the way we normally do in our day-to-day -day life and acting on it or allowing it to kind of pull our attention along, we, we put up a little firewall and say, okay, no, I'm actually, I'm actually going to contain this energy and try to learn from it, look at it closely. So on this retreat for the next three days, the, uh, the request is to be celibate. And Again, the, the levels of refinement, what we're trying to do here is to create a, a container and a space of safety and mutual respect. So we are, we're, we are all sexual beings, and we can be responsible with that energy, even in how we relate to one another. So to take care when, you, when that energy is present in you, and to, and to come from a place of, of care and respect in our, in our relationships. The fourth precept is the purpose of our gathering, which is about our speech and communication. Um, for periods of this retreat, we will be observing what's called noble silence, which is about not communicating verbally. It also means not reading not writing, not checking your phone or going online or doing social media, okay? Um, the purpose of this is to support the deepening of mindfulness, concentration, and kindness. So we're, we're removing a certain level of distraction so that the energy of our minds can, can start to gather and collect inside ourselves. When, when our mind is more focused and clear, we can learn more deeply. So your um, wholehearted participation in the practice of noble silence will deepen the learning here, I guarantee you. So every evening, We'll gather together here, just as we have tonight, after supper. And from the time that we come into this hall in the evening, all the way through the night, through breakfast, through your work period, until the time that you come back into this hall after breakfast, we'll start with a sit, please maintain silence. 
If you need to communicate, write a note. Obviously, if you're doing a job, where's the soap? You know, it's fine. Noble silence doesn't mean no speaking. It means that you, uh, you, you limit any speech to the bare essentials and otherwise just write a note or just wait till later. Is that clear? Yeah, and it's, again, just to, just to say explicitly, we all have different relationships with silence. And for some of us, it's like bliss. It's like, oh, thank God, I don't have to talk to anyone. For other people, it can be very complicated, especially depending on, you know, our experiences in life, our family, our culture. Um, this, isn't, this isn't about being silenced or not having a voice. It's, it's a gift. It's an act of respect that we, we give each other the gift of solitude to say, I respect you and I, I want you to have this time for yourself. So the interaction, the, the practice of noble silence includes uh, eye contact and gestures, right? It's not just that we're not speaking, it's like, you know, just keep your attention inward, right? Keep it here during those periods. Um, my recommendation to you um, so then during the day when we're practicing, we'll, we'll be speaking, we'll be moving in and out of silence, um, but periods where we're speaking. My recommendation to you is that um, you refrain from communicating with people outside the retreat until Sunday. If you have an elderly parent or a young child at home and you need to be in touch, that's fine. Do what you need to. Um, but if you don't... Um, Put put a auto reply on your phone, you know. Send a text message to your folks or your family or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your partner, and just say, "Hey, you know, I'm not going to be in touch this weekend. I love you. I'll talk to you on Sunday." And it's just a way of simplifying, so that our our energy and our attention can really gather. It's like if you want to study something, you want to look closely at it and you have a microscope, you can see very, very, very deeply, very clearly. That's what concentration does. And the more we can keep our focus and our energy and our attention here on this experience, the more powerful your awareness will be to absorb the, the learning that we'll be exploring together. So that's the precept on uh, speech and silence. And then the fifth precept, is around intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. So this practice is about clarity of mind. And so um, when we take uh, substances that make us less clear, uh, we're going in the opposite direction. And we're more likely to break one of the other precepts and do something that causes harm. So uh, this doesn't apply to prescription drugs. If you take any kind of prescription drugs, please continue taking them. It's not, not the right time to experiment going off them. Um, but if you have brought any kind of recreational drugs or alcohol, um, please refrain from using them. Um, if that feels like it might be challenging or difficult for you, please come talk to me. Really, no judgment. You know, if you, if you have some recreational drugs with you and you're like, you know, I really don't want to use them, but I might be tempted, feel free to give them to me. 
I will hold them and give them back to you on Sunday. Uh, it's never actually happened, but but the but seriously, you know, um, I, I want this time to be a time of ease and support for you. Um, uh, anything else? Let's see. Coffee is not included. Yeah. But it might be it might be for you. You know, you know you you know your own nervous system. If 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 coffee drives you nuts, then don't drink coffee, but um yeah, coffee's not included. Uh any questions about these guidelines that were that I'm that I'm suggesting and offering here? No. Okay, great. So um we'll do this one call and response in English. Uh and again, um uh feel free to verbalize it or if that doesn't feel comfortable to just reflect silently on it. And uh, is there, yeah, Susanna? Um, the yes, it's open 24 hours a day. Yeah, so you can sit up as late as you want. You can come as early as you like. Yeah, yeah, great. Tomorrow morning, the wake up bell, so, is at 6 a.m. and we'll meet here at 6.30 for a meditation. Yeah. Any other questions about logistics or anything we need to know? Yeah. So, yeah, thank you, so, thank you. So the, the recommendation is during the periods of silence um, to minimize interaction, which would include eye contact. Now, of course, look, you're in the breakfast line and you make eye contact with someone, that's, you know, smile, it's fine, you just be natural, <laughs> you know. But in general, it's like, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and usually socially, there's that sense of like, ah, oh, good morning, you know, it's like you don't have to do that here. You don't have to. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to be nice. Just, just do your thing. You know, wear your pajamas. Go get your cup of coffee and sit with your bowl of oatmeal. You know, you don't have to look up if you don't want to. And like, it's not personal. You know, you're not being rude. Or if the person sitting next to you doesn't say good morning, it's not because they don't like you. <laughs> They're just doing the practice. So be with your own moment-to-moment -moment experience and keep your, keep your attention mostly with yourself. Again, we don't need to be rigid or uptight about it, but there's this sense of the, um, the attention, rather than going out into the environment and to other people during these periods of silence, we're using those to uh, strengthen mindfulness and concentration and have the attention more centered in ourselves. You're welcome. Thank you for the question. Okay, so let's take these precepts and then we'll just end with a couple moments of silence. Uh, is there an extra one of these? I might use different words than what's written down. Thank you. I undertake the training to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. 
I undertake the training to refrain from any intentional sexual activity. I undertake the training to refrain from harmful speech patterns. I undertake the training to refrain from taking intoxicating drink and drugs which lead to carelessness. May my ethical conduct bear the fruit of complete awakening. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So let's just sit together for a moment or two. Letting all of the words settle. Feeling the body. And recollecting your intention for being here. Enjoy the silence. I hope that you rest well and rise refreshed. And I'll see you in the morning at 6.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.